Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi guys, this is the latest installment of the Franco-Dutch War. I hope you've been enjoying it. And if you have any questions or queries or anything else, make sure to get in contact with me and let me know what you think. I would like to encourage you guys to check out When Diplomacy Fails' us back catalogue, but I would also encourage you guys to support this podcast in whatever way you may be able to, which includes dun, 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 buying a t-shirt. Imagine that concept, buying a t-shirt, guys, whether you want a t-shirt with my logo plastered all over yourself, or with the wondrous quote, always be yourself, unless you can be Bismarck, then always be Bismarck. Check them out, guys historytees.net or go to my website www.wdfpodcast.com and click on the t-shirt banner remember to use the code wdf16 to get 10% off and if you buy more than three t-shirts which hey you may as well it's nearly christmas or hanukkah or happy holidays as they say in america and some other places you may as well buy loads buy six buy 20 even buy loads But the more you buy, the more commission I'll get. The more happy I'll be that you're representing me all over the place in your daily life. And then the more people that will listen to this podcast. Also, you get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside because you know you'll support me. Which at the end of the day, hey, that's why we're all here. Unless, of course, you're here to listen to actual history. In which case, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to part two of When Diplomacy Fails' look at the Franco-Dutch War. In the last episode, we saw how the Earl of Clarendon was made the scapegoat for all that had gone wrong in the preceding years. Here we will see the origins of the kind of foreign policies which led, through a series of insults and errors in judgment, towards the greatest war Europe had seen since the Thirty Years' War had ended. It all begins with Louis XIV of France, the man of the hour, and the ambitions he had for the Spanish Netherlands. After years of threatening and suggestive talking, it is here that he finally makes his move. Although we've covered his war in some kind of way in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, we didn't really give him his time in the limelight, which, considering the importance of what he does here, I felt he deserved his own episode to kind of examine how he got on in the Spanish Netherlands and and what other people thought about it. So, that's what this episode is for. 
let's see what happens. I will now take you to May 1667. If we did not take great pains, and were not at great expense to corrupt our nature, our nature would never corrupt us. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon. The axe fell suddenly, and when it fell, it almost seemed as though, despite the anticipation which had been building for years, few powers seemed either able to stop it or expected it to occur. The French invasion of the Spanish Netherlands at the end of May 1667 was the culmination of years of nervous, anxious expectation on the part of Europe. Ever since Louis XIV had been married to the daughter of the Spanish king, Philip IV, it seemed certain that complications would arise. Indeed, as per the terms of that marriage, Louis' bride was to renounce her claims on her Spanish inheritance in return for a large dowry of 500,000 escudos, a sum which, if one knew Spain in the 1660s, you wouldn't have expected it to be paid. The marriage agreement actually formed part of the 1659 Peace of the Pyrenees and had been designed by Cardinal Mazarin to bring about the end of that near 25-year war between France and Spain. Though it was designed to usher in a new era of peace, within the treaty Mazarin had clearly left room for future discord in the Franco-Spanish marriage. It was, in a sense, his final gift to his French king, who had in many ways been his pupil in the years before. Whether Mazarin fully appreciated how legitimate a pretext he was handing his king is less important than how Louis actually attempted to use it and what that utilisation said about the Sun King's character. The complicated legal lingo which enabled Louis XIV to find his just cause would never have completely convinced any form of court in the 17th century. The important point to remember before we attempt to dissect its legal stance and assess its legitimacy is that historians are unanimous in that it was a fairly ridiculous pretext and that Louis heartily believed more in the fact that he wanted a war with the weakened Spanish Netherlands, and that he required justification for such a war, than he believed he was actually handing his wife what was rightfully hers. Louis's wife, Maria Theresa, was the daughter of Philip IV from that king's first marriage, while upon Philip's death in 1665, Spain was under a regency to prepare Charles II, who we'll call Carlos, to avoid any confusion with the Stuart, Charles II, for the throne. Carlos was Philip's son from his second marriage, and under the customs of the Spanish Netherlands when it came to the issue of private inheritance, custom allowed that the assets could devolve to the offspring of the original marriage before it would devolve to the offspring of the second or third or other marriages, etc., This local law had been in place for a few decades, but its origins are not especially important. And since we don't want to bombard you with terminology, let's just clear up a few things. The basics you should know about this law is that it referred to private citizens, 
and that, in the past, families could choose whether they wanted to avail of it or not. More often than not, when it came to inheritance devolving after the head of a family died, by that point his offspring from his first marriage had already married and made lives for themselves, and they rarely sought to access, or at least did not seek to access all, of the assets left by their father's death. It was not unusual for men to become widowed and then remarry, particularly with the dangers of childbirth, and it could often occur that prestigious men married two or even three times following the death of a spouse. To protect the original offspring's rights, this law of devolution was developed in case the children from the second and third marriages tried to take it all for themselves. Thus the offspring from the first marriage had what you could call a kind of seniority where inheritance was concerned, but like I said, this law rarely had to be invoked because by the time the head of the family died, his first marriage children had already moved on and probably had their own families and their own complicated lines of inheritance by then. That's not to say they wouldn't have wanted any pieces of the pie, just that they rarely made a very big deal of it, or ripped up parts of Europe in order to get what they thought was rightfully theirs. So now that we've somewhat defined it, let's list three immediate problems with Louis' attempts to invoke this law of devolution for his own ends. First, as far as its usage goes, the law existed mostly on paper only. More than a few historians have described the law of devolution as obsolete or irrelevant, since it had been so inconsistently invoked. One historian noted that it hadn't been invoked for 38 years by the time it caught Louis' attention, and when that had occurred, it was in the case of a private merchant family in 1629, Bruges, where the son from the first marriage agreed to divide some of his father's assets with his younger half-brother. Thus it was a private contract, if such a contract was even invoked at all. In the nearly four decades since its last occurrence, the law of devolution had been virtually forgotten in the Spanish Netherlands. Second, as you may have noticed by now since I keep on using the term, the law of devolution was a private contract. It was not a law drawn up for the sake of stately disputes or questions of dynastic inheritance. Furthermore, although the law of devolution had barely made itself felt, in the century or so of the law's existence, it had never once been invoked in the name of a woman. Though this fact was hardly unsurprising in the male-dominated 17th century that Louis lived in, it is still a remarkable fact. Since it was an agreement between private persons, it was also meant to apply to private property, not to sovereign rights over territory. It should be added to this point that, in the spirit of trying to make the law of devolution apply to such matters, Louis wasn't claiming all of the Spanish Netherlands. He only wanted the parts, in the name of his wife, that were of strategic interest to France. How very convenient. To Louis, he was thus in his legal rights to claim portions of the Spanish Netherlands, but leave the Spanish crown to the sickly Carlos, and leave the situation at that. To a cynical Europe, then, Louis was taking what he wanted and absolving himself of a poisoned chalice, and it was all just too convenient. The third and most glaring problem revolving around the law of devolution and Louis' attempts to use it as a pretext for war, though, was that Louis would be able to count very few in Europe who wouldn't take one look at what he was doing and see through the thinly veiled ambitions of a young, energetic king eager to acquire some glory for himself on the battlefield. In short, the third point is that it didn't work because this was the 17th century, and in the cynical minds of Europe's statesmen, 
it was just too convenient that the noble move in the name of his queen would just so happen to so benefit French security, as well as its economic and defensive interests for the future. For it was well known that Spain was on the decline by now. It had been known ever since the signing of the Peace of the Pyrenees, or the Battle of Roquois, 20 years before that. So blatantly obvious was the truth to some that Mazarin's League of the Rhine, so meticulously crafted by 1658 to prevent Habsburg aggrandizement and improve Franco-German security along France's Rhine border, began to actually crumble apart. Johann de Witt of the States of Holland had been warning the English as early as 1662 that once Philip IV of Spain died, Louis would take advantage of the fact that his wife's dowry had not been paid to swoop in and claim that wife's no longer revoked inheritance. And of course, if anyone knew about the Spanish not paying up, it was Charles II, who had seen for himself just how poor the Spanish were while he had lived in exile. It is now time to quote from one historian whom we will likely be drawing heavily from for anything remotely militarily related for the next few episodes. James Faulkner's book, Marshal Vauban and the Defence of Louis XIV's France, is a significant and highly illuminating account, not just of Seigneur Vauban, Louis's chief engineer for essentially all of the wars he launched, but it also provides critical information on the nature of warfare at the time, and it really opened my eyes to how campaigns were lost and won in the 17th century. In the Thirty Years' War, we saw how battles turned the tide of the war, most notably at Recroix in 1643, when Spanish invincibility was finally trounced on the battlefield, or in the Battle of Breitenfeld of 1631, where Gustavus Adolphus smashed the Habsburg control of Europe after so many Habsburg triumphs. When we reach the wars launched by Louis and the like, though, a seismic shift seems to occur in the way Europeans fought and won wars, partly because few states sought to risk it all in open battle, and partly because all around France stood rings of Spanish or German fortifications, wherever France wished to expand, she was bound to be forced to endure campaigns of siege, defence and counter-siege in order to make any headway. One of the primary themes of Louis' wars, in fact, is the mission he had to strengthen and improve French security by effectively capturing regions just outside the French border, so that they could be reinforced and serve as a kind of first line of defence or buffer state against outside attack. This would be done alongside the Rhine, in Alsace, in Lorraine and in Franche Comte, but it would occur perhaps most blatantly in the Spanish Netherlands. Who was in charge of ensuring that such fortifications were up to scratch, and who was charged with the seizure of fortifications that were in enemy hands? His name was Sebastian Leprestre, otherwise known as Signor de Vauban. My theory, and one which we actually talked about a good bit in a recent Agora group chat on the Peace of Westphalia and whether it was overrated, is that it probably only feels like a change in warfare has come about in the years after the Thirty Years' War, because France is the one instigating all the wars, let's be honest, and it remains essentially at the heart of European conflict for the next century or so, particularly while under Louis XIV. Because the focus is so on France at this time, and because the only real way France could fight its battles is through siegecraft, it's no wonder we can feel like everything in Europe changed. Where fortresses did not exist, pitch battles did remain the norm, 
And as we all know, before we looked at Louis, it was naval battles or deluges which characterised those campaigns. Geography then, rather than the current trends on how to fight a war, in my opinion shaped how wars developed and what they looked like. All that being said, the person of Vauban was one of those that comes around only once in a century. That's the thing about this era, you have such incredible personalities and stories, but on rare occasions do such vibrant personalities have such great help as these men did. Whether it was naval geniuses like Michael de Rutscher in the Netherlands, or the Earl of Clarendon balancing domestic affairs, or Vauban as a siege genius, countries were made and lost by the talents of men like these. Additionally, Faulkner also gives us a valuable insight into how the practice of besieging fortress towns was brought about, and we'll certainly be coming back to his explanations of this method of warfare in the future. Incidentally, Faulkner also provides a useful commentary on the outbreak of hostilities in this War of Devolution, as it became known, when he noted that Louis XIV claimed that a major part of the Spanish Netherlands should come to Maria Theresa as the daughter of the first marriage of Philip IV, rather than going to Carlos II, the weak and almost invalid son of the Spanish king's second marriage. This was quite incorrect, as the law, which was actually more in the nature of a custom than anything else, was intended to apply to private property, not to sovereign rights over territory. It could even be added to this that Louis XIV, believing as he did so uncompromisingly in the divine right of kings and their inheritance, might never even have considered the marriage agreement with Maria Theresa. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...to have revoked her inheritance claims, even if double the dowry had actually been paid. The point is, of course, the dowry wasn't paid, and thus Louis could claim what rightfully belonged to his wife. 
He didn't want the throne of Spain. Oh no, he wasn't prepared to go that far. Well, not yet, anyway. Instead, the law of devolution enabled him to claim just a chunk of what she was entitled to, and uphold that as her rightful inheritance, rather than seek to usurp Carlos's troubled reign. Faced with such clear obstacles to being taken seriously, Louis must have been somewhat sensitive to the idea that his machinations would be exposed for what they were, and so, as James Faulkner notes, The king took the time to dictate a justification of his wife's rights, and for the associated declaration of war on Spain, a treaty on the rights of the queen. The whole argument had just enough constitutional baggage attached, when seen in an uncritical light, to be of use in a legalistic argument, and there were some obscure procedural precedents to hold on to, to enable a cloak of respectability to be cast around Louis XIV's aggressive moves against his neighbours in the north. An oft-repeated claim of histories of this era is the nature of Carlos II's illness and just how bad his condition was. To put it simply, Carlos was in an awful state. His parents, for starters, were themselves related. Philip IV's bride, Mariana of Austria, was in fact his niece. While even before that excessive inbreeding had squeezed the Habsburg gene pool of any original blood. Let's just say, if you thought Louis XIV marrying his cousin Maria Theresa was bad, don't look too far back into Carlos's history. The poor guy couldn't speak until he was about four, couldn't walk until he was eight, and was treated essentially like a baby until he reached adolescence. Spanish doctors, unsure what to really do with this mangled king, did not wish to see him overtaxed for fear that he might die suddenly, and so Carlos was never given a formal education. He never attended any kind of school. Added to this, he was infertile and frequently came down with bouts of varying illnesses, to such a degree that regular ambassadorial dispatches claimed that the boy was on his deathbed, because it probably seemed like he was. These rumours only grew worse as Carlos matured, defying all expectations, and unfortunately also outliving all of the potential heirs who could succeed him. As per his deformed status, his jaw was malformed, an example of the Habsburg jaw, so he couldn't even eat without extreme difficulty, adding to his ailments, for he was thus frequently underweight. Furthermore, with such a malformation, he could hardly speak, and made use of numerous interpreters and confidants to express his wishes. Since Carlos was the sole surviving male heir of Philip IV, it was up to him to continue on the Spanish Habsburg line. Yet as we have seen, he was infertile, and even though Europeans couldn't have known this at the time, he was rumoured to have been unable to consummate any kind of marriage, owing to his extreme physical defects. Just as surely as Spain had rested on its laurels for too long during its golden age, so too did it rest too heavily on family when it came to producing an heir. When Carlos died in 1700, you all know where this is going, years later than everyone expected, he was the last Spanish Habsburg to die in the office of the king. Thus the dynasty which first began with the passing on by Charles V of his titles to his nephew Philip II in the mid-1500s, ended 150 years later. And what was more, as we all know, it ended with a war. Where Carlos concerns us, other than providing a tragic and pathetic symbol of the Spanish decline over the next generation of wars, is that his rivals frequently expected his end at any moment, and were thus moving at all times to plot against him once that occurred. This explains an incredible act, 
And it seems quite out of character for the man, considering what a thorn in the side he would be of Louis XIV in the future. I'm talking about Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor. Leopold had concluded an agreement in 1668, whereby if Carlos died, France and the Austrian Habsburgs would carve up portions of the Spanish domains together. Leopold did this because he believed that it was better to get Louis on side and limit what the French would militarily seize, while he also believed that if he held on to Spanish domains, he could keep them secure from whatever power plays might occur in Spain, and even return them in future if circumstances allowed. Primarily, Leo and Louis tried to parcel up Italy, the Spanish Netherlands and Franche Comte, all of which were regions where France and Spain had so frequently butted heads. Spain itself was not to be touched, and Spain's American holdings were also to be left alone. Through this way, Louis believed that he had an insurance policy, if Carlos did die in the near future. Though he was only a child of six years old by 1667, Carlos provided the courts of Europe with endless sources of rumour and intrigue, as the nature of his deformities, his illness, and whether he was even still alive, remained hot topics. Louis appreciated that with the Holy Roman Emperor pacified, he could have a relatively free hand to bulldoze the Spanish Netherlands and take what he wished. The Dutch wouldn't intervene, Louis reasoned, because in the first place there was a Franco-Dutch alliance in place, and Louis had frequently aided Johann de Witt in his battles against the irksome British. Speaking of the irksome British, they were actually at war with both France and the Netherlands at this point, and by May 1667, The raid on the Medway, which would rescue the war as a Dutch shattering victory, had yet to even occur. Thus, even if they hadn't approved, Louis didn't expect any Dutch interference since they were so preoccupied fighting the English at sea. Louis was supposed to be fighting the English at sea as well, but since Britain came under the reign of his cousin, Charles II, it had since proved easier to make a show of war for the sake of the Dutch ally, while also moving towards bigger and better things, in the meantime. It should also be said that the British conduct in the war was so ineffectual that Louis may not even have felt sufficiently threatened, even if he and Charles hadn't been mostly good pals. The two maritime powers, in short, more than had their hands full with one another, and surely wouldn't really notice France taking what was rightfully hers. With the Emperor in agreement, the maritime powers at each other's throats, and the Spanish government in chaos, Louis couldn't have felt anything other than confident. After years of manoeuvre, this was finally the right time to strike. If such factors were what was really important then, why did Louis go to such trouble to manipulate the terms of local laws and arrive at the strange, semi-pretext, by which he had now acquired? If nobody was naive enough to believe him, in other words, Why did Louis even bother at all? Why didn't he just throw caution to the wind and invade, after he got all his diplomatic affairs in order? I mean, did it really matter? The reason is somewhat simple, but it is also an underrated fact of the era. You see, although one could judge Louis's reasoning for taking what was owed to his wife, and though one could argue that Louis was only doing this to expand the borders of France and bring glory to France, the cloak of respectability as Faulkner called it, was still important. One couldn't be seen to simply attack one's neighbours, that would make everyone uneasy. A pretext, however flimsy, had to be found if one was to make diplomacy fail. This won't be the last time Louis will claim to be acting in the name of principles, 
completely out of whack with why other statesmen believed he was acting. It didn't matter to Louis so much that everyone believed him, though. What mattered was what the record would show. And for the War of Devolution, Louis wanted the record to show that this energetic, glorious young king marched to war at the head of an invincible army to restore the possessions to his wife, a woman whose honour and rights were only justly served by such a marching. If he said it enough times, perhaps Louis believed his neighbours would believe him. Perhaps on the other hand, he couldn't give the rough end of a pineapple what Europe thought, and to him the existence of a casus belli, however wafer-thin, was enough. One quality Louis certainly did care about, whatever one could say about his sincerity, where his wife's rights of inheritance were concerned, was the pursuit of glory. Glory, to us, is a straightforward enough term. It can be lumped into the same camp of terms as prestige, national honour, reputation, status, credit, international standing and notoriety. And if you know me, you know I've gone over these terms many times, and I've even written a dissertation about them in the line of the First World War. Here, it was useful when one was bluffing, when trying to negotiate, when seeking renown, increasing the popularity of the regime, or when a young king wished to prove himself and justify his people's faith in him. If he could deliver big victories and success on the battlefield, Louis could give his people the international reputation, the fame, fortune and prestige that living in France and being a French citizen would imbue. If he could deliver... Being a French citizen would be akin to no other honour, since no other monarch would be able to hold a candle to his legend. And the creation of a legend was what Louis seemed to have in mind, at least during the early years of his reign. One historian of the period, John A. Lynn, in his book, The Wars of Louis XIV, actually divides the wars of Louis over the period 1668-1714 into three distinct phases. In the first phase, which begins here and ends in the mid-1670s, Louis fights for fame, for glory and for the personal honour of the Bourbon monarchy. In phase two, Louis still emphasises glory, but to him, glory now meant defending his lands rather than conquering new ones. The problem, of course, was that in order to defend one's borders, Louis often went to extreme lengths, like capturing the fortresses on the Rhine which were universally recognised as strategically important to all of Europe, or ravaging the lands of his enemies to prevent them from attacking him. Because warfare was so bound up with acquiring new positions from which to defend France, Louis still appeared to Europe as the conquering tyrant, never shying from war in the name of his own personal gain. This was a common problem for Louis. He would consistently underestimate the level of animosity Europeans held towards him. Above all, though, he is more infamous for overplaying his hand at some of the worst of times. In the final third phase of his reign of wars, from the beginning of the 1700s to 1714, Louis fights a war almost solely for the crown of Spain. Louis did, to give him his due, try to find a way out of the war which would come on the death of Carlos, but when Carlos's will gave Louis the choice of either taking everything or nothing, Louis felt forced to act, and a major European war was waged again. Thanks for that, Carlos. The reason why I ran through these conflicts here is because it gives us a good picture of Louis' character arc, as well as how his image developed in Europe. Though by the middle of the Franco-Dutch War he had ceased to want to wage war in the name of glory, 
To his enemies, the image Louis portrayed, of needing to take fortresses to better defend France, was so similar to the earlier picture that they couldn't really tell the difference. Even in the Spanish War of Succession, where Louis tries to negotiate with Leopold to partition Spanish holdings and avoid a general war, he would later be upheld as the warmongering Sun King because he would again plunge his state into war either way. This brief rundown gives us an introduction into an important theme of Louis' reign, his image and appearance in foreign courts. The War of Devolution was the first time Europe would be stunned into cooperating against France, but it was merely the first of five times, and marked the beginning of Europe associating Louis not with an energetic king, good for his people and proudly leading them to distinction, but a dangerous ruler, bored with peace and determined to plunge Europe incessantly into the throes of instability. As we will see, the series of wars which occur from this point onwards must be seen from both perspectives, if we are to gain a complete picture both of what went on and who Louis XIV truly was. We have to, in other words, investigate both versions of Louis, the hero and the tyrant, if we want to do this era of history justice. Unaware, of course, of how history would pan out, Louis led the invasion into the Spanish Netherlands, at last breaking the peace and confirming the worst fears of Johann de Witt in the process. As English statesmen grappled with the idea that they may be fighting the wrong enemy, and that it was Paris, not The Hague, which represented the true universal monarchy, de Witt scrambled to get as much news as he could from his contacts down south. How much land was Louis prepared to take? How big was his army? How prepared were the Spanish? All of these were key questions, whatever true motivations had moved Louis to invade his neighbour. The populous, rich and prosperous Spanish provinces had long caught the eye of the French, but for years the Spanish had done good work in ensuring that the French were too isolated and too surrounded to act against them. Now, after years of appearing like an ingenious process of encirclement, the scattered Spanish holdings on the French border seemed dangerously isolated and cut off from Madrid. The fact was, as the Earl of Clarendon would learn a year after these events, and in fact we saw him learn it in the last episode, the sharks of opportunism could smell blood, and when the blood was sensed, few but the strongest men could resist its impulse. It seemed clear as fortress after fortress fell through June and July 1667, and as plans were made to wheel around and invade Franche Comte, the successor state of Spain's Burgundian inheritance, which also lay along the French eastern border with the Rhine, that something had to be done to restrain the Sun King if he refused to restrain himself. By preparing the ground beforehand and ensuring the isolation of Spain, Louis perhaps believed that he would have a perfect run at the Spanish Netherlands and be able to take the forts in Flanders, Hainaut and Brabant as he desired. However, despite the ferocious and terrifying success of the French, which proved even more definitively that Spanish power was dead in the water, diplomatic moves were already being made to contain what the ambitious, glory-hungry French king had done. As 1668 approached, Louis couldn't have known it, but he was about to taste the sting of defeat for the first time. The stinging lesson would come from an unlikely source, not the Holy Roman Emperor, and certainly not from the Spanish, but from his cousin, Charles II, 
and his recent diplomatic efforts alongside the Dutch to roll back the clock on all that Louis XIV had done. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.